tonight, I invite you to Exodus chapter 24. Exodus chapter 24. Over the last several weeks, we have been in what is called the Book of the Covenant. The Book of the Covenant is a collection of laws and commands given from God through Moses to the people. And these commands are built on top of the foundation laid in the Ten Commandments. And so these commands grow out of those Ten Commandments. They have to do with different areas of life, with the worship of God, with interactions between people, uh, the proper way to relate to one another and the proper way to relate to God. What we come to tonight in Exodus chapter 24 is essentially a ceremony. It is after the giving of the law from God through Moses, it is now a coming together of all the people and entering formally into a covenant with God. And so what we see here is full of ceremony and ritual and specific actions that symbolize the ratification of this covenant between God and the Israelites. And so I want to read this passage together. Verse 1, I'm going to read all the way through the end of the chapter, verse 18. And then uh, we will look at this covenant ceremony together tonight. Exodus chapter 24, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance, but Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must not come near, and the people may not come up with him. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, Everything the Lord has said, we will do. Moses then wrote down everything that the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls, and the other half he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, We will do everything the Lord has said we will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel went up, went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli and bright blue as the sky. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God and they ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and stay here, and I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and commandments I have written for their instruction. Then Moses set out with Joshua his aide, and Moses went up on the mountain of God. He said to the elders, Wait here for us until we come back to you. Aaron and Hur are with you, and anyone involved in a dispute can go to them. 
When Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the Lord covered the mountain, and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Then Moses entered the cloud as he went on up the mountain, and he stayed on the mountain forty days and forty nights. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this, your precious word that you have given to us. We thank you for your servant Moses. Such an important role that he played in your plan on behalf of your people. He was their intercessor. He was their mediator between you and them. He was their lawgiver, their great prophet. And so, Lord, we thank you for the ministry, the leadership of Moses and and your grace at work in him, in preparing him and raising him up for that very purpose. We thank you for what these words teach us and how they reveal more of your holiness, more of your righteous character and how we as your people should relate to you in covenant with you. And Father, we ask that you would teach us. And help us to apply these words to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. I think one of the first things that this passage teaches us, and we see this in the first half of the passage of chapter 24, is that being in covenant with God is both a gracious thing, but also a solemn thing. Being in covenant with God is both a gracious thing, Thing and a solemn thing, and therefore it's appropriate to honor the seriousness of that occasion with a solemn ceremony. And so that's what we see in the opening verses of this chapter. It is a ceremony. And as you would expect in a formal ceremony, there are several moving parts. That you have several people who are involved in this ceremony. You have several stages that have to be gone through in the outworking of this ceremony. We might even liken it to, say, a wedding ceremony, where if you've ever been at a wedding ceremony, most of you have, most of you have been in one. Uh, If you've been at a wedding ceremony, you know that uh, there is typically an order of service and people stand in certain places. Uh, Different people have different roles. And so you've got a minister, you've got the bride and the groom, you've got the attending parties, you've got the the crowd who are serve, serve as witnesses, musicians. So you have different people playing different roles in the wedding ceremony. And then you also have an order that you go through. And, and it's a pretty traditional order, isn't it? Most wedding ceremonies that you go to, it follows a pretty traditional order. And included in that order is what you might call the official joining together with vows in covenant between husband and wife. So you have you have the music and you have the processions and you have the different things, but the, the thing that is crucial to the wedding ceremony are the vows and the pronouncement by the minister, I now pronounce you husband and wife. And so this those are actions and words that that create a relationship, create a unique relationship. We might think of that as an analogy of what's happening here in Exodus 24. This is a ceremony. There are different parties who, are, who play different roles 
in the ceremony. And you have, at one key portion of this ceremony, you have a reading of the vows, if you will. You have a reading of the book of the covenant, and then a response from the people, we will do this, we will obey. And so that's the heart, that's the, that's the formal agreement to the covenant. And then along with that, you have different ceremonial aspects, such as the offering of a sacrifice and the sprinkling of blood, and even a a fellowship meal that is shared together. All these are aspects of the covenant ceremony. And much of it follows a typical ancient Near Eastern covenant uh, traditional order in the way that covenants were enacted. And we've seen this even in literature outside of the Bible in the ancient world. The way that parties would enter into agreement with one another this covenant ceremony follows many of those steps. And there are several elements that are represented here. But the first thing that we see in this covenant ceremony are the participants in the ceremony. So in verses 1 and 2, we have the participants. Obviously, the most important participant is the Lord himself, right? So the Lord, he is the sovereign one. And this covenant is most closely related to what we see in the ancient world as a suzerain-vassal treaty. And a suzerain-vassal treaty is essentially a two-way agreement between someone who is higher in authority and prominence to someone who is lower in authority and prominence, to a vassal. And so they enter into a bilateral agreement with each other, so it's two-sided, but it's not equal parties. There is one party who is clearly superior to the other. The Lord is that party in this covenant. He is the master. He is the king. And he is entering into a covenant with these, his people. And so the Lord is one of the, is the main participant. But then on the other side, the other side of the agreement, you have the Israelites. And the Israelites are represented by key people. So not all of the Israelites can go and appear before the Lord. In fact, the Lord specifically says that all of the people are not to come and appear before me. But the Lord does allow certain representatives of Israel to come further up the mountain into his presence. And so it's almost like you have different stages. You have the whole assembly of the people down and removed away from the base of the mountain And then you have Nadab and Abihu and Aaron and the 70 elders who are allowed to come up a a partial way up the mountain. But then you have Moses and Moses alone who was allowed to ascend all the way to meet the Lord. So Aaron and Nadab and Abihu, they're representatives of the priesthood, of of the priests, of the high priesthood and those who would minister before the people of Israel. But then you also have the 70 elders. The 70 elders were probably just, you know, important people, lay people from within the community representing all the 12 tribes of Israel. And so among these 70 elders, you probably have representatives from all 12 of the tribes. And they've come representing the populace, if you will. They've come representing the people. And so you have representatives of the priests and of the people. But Moses is the key intercessor, isn't he? He's the key mediator of this covenant between God and the people. And so those are the participants. But then in verse 3, you have the presentation and acceptance of the covenant's terms. 
And, and I might even, given the way that this flows, I might even say this is a preliminary giving of the covenant's terms and acceptance. It's almost like you would see in a, in a marriage ceremony where, where you, you declare your intentions at the beginning, but then later on in the, in the wedding ceremony, you have more the official reading and recitation of the vows. It's almost as if this first one is kind of an initial agreement in principle to doing what the Lord has asked and agreeing both ways. The Lord says, I will do this for you and I'll protect you and I will be your God. And the Israelites say, we will follow your word. We will obey you. And so they agree to this. So there's a presentation and acceptance of the covenant's terms in verse 3. Then in verse 4, we see an official recording of the covenant's terms. So you see in verse 4, it says, Moses wrote down everything that the Lord had said. So essentially, Moses is, and I, I take this as kind of an official writing down, an official recording of the laws and commands of the Lord. And the reason this is significant is because when it goes into writing, it takes on more long-lasting form, doesn't it? So, so this is no longer just, well, I heard this. No, I heard this. No, but I thought he said this. When it goes into writing, it is permanent, isn't it? And it, it's set out very clearly in clear words for all to understand. You might even liken it uh, to a modern analogy of a written contract that it's written down and the words there are presented and they're binding on the people involved. And so Moses wrote out the words of the covenant, the terms that the people had just accepted so that its stipulations would be fixed in writing. So Moses records the covenant's terms. And then at the second part of verse four through verse eight, you have the, the ceremonial ratification of the covenant. You have a ceremonial ratification of the covenant. And, and this is the part of the covenant ceremony that is probably going to be the most foreign to us. Because it involves ancient Israelite rituals and ceremonies that we don't, we don't do anything like this anymore. Because when we enter into a contract or a covenant with someone, we don't kill an animal and, and sprinkle blood as a symbol of that contractual or covenant obligation. But that is how it is done here in the ancient world and in ancient Israel. And so what we see here is a sacrifice of, of animals. It says in verse 4 that Moses got up in the next morning and he built an altar at the foot of the mountain. Now, the idea here of building is probably more the idea of, of setting up stones in the sense that, that this is not a well-constructed, you know, measured out or carved altar it's probably just made out of stones. So they're kind of set up on top of each other to, to make this altar. And then he probably found larger stones that could be stood upright to symbolize these 12 pillars of, of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so he sets this up, and this is the place where God will be worshipped, but also the place where this ceremony will take place. And so then he sent young Israelite men, and these are probably men that represent all the tribes of Israel. So they're representative and they go out and they bring the animals and they are engaged in the sacrifice of these animals. They offer burnt offerings 
And it says they offer young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Now, I think there's an important point that we need to think about here, and that is these offerings, this sacrifice that is taking place here, we're, we're tempted to want to correlate this with, say, the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament and see these as essentially linked. But we need to be careful with that because what's happening here is unique to a covenant ratification ceremony. And so the, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is redemptive, as in like the Passover lamb. Uh, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is atoning or expiatory, as in the sacrifices on the Day of Atonement. These sacrifices are not atoning sacrifices. Nowhere does it say that they're sin offerings or guilt offerings. These are not specifically for atonement or for expiation of sins. In fact, they're called free will offerings. So these are more offerings that are given in the context of a covenant ceremony. In fact, you might even say that the, the blood represents a warning. The blood of these animals represents a warning to both of the parties who are involved in a ratification of a covenant that if you break the covenant, then you are calling judgment upon yourself. It's very similar to what we see happen with uh, Abraham in the book of Genesis, Genesis 15. We see God entering into a covenant with Abraham and he divides these animals. Remember that story? He, he takes these animals the, and he, he divides them in halves and he creates this path. And, and the symbolism of that is these animals and what happened to those animals is like a curse, like a judgment on the one who breaks the terms of the covenant. But then in that case, in Genesis, it is the Lord and the Lord alone who passes between the, the animals, isn't it? Symbolizing this is a one-way covenant, that the Lord will accomplish the terms of this covenant. This is a little bit different in the sense that this is a two-way covenant. And the Lord is entering into this covenant, and he has given himself as their Lord and their Redeemer and their guard and protector. But the Israelite people are also responding, saying, we will obey. So this is a, a different kind of a covenant than the Abrahamic covenant. So these sacrifices are... They're a ritual, a part of the covenant ceremony in its ratification. And what ends up happening is Moses takes the blood from these sacrificial animals and half of it goes into bowls and the other half of it he sprinkles or splashes up against the side of this altar that he has made where the animals were sacrificed. And what does this symbolize? Most commentators agree that this symbolizes the blood being applied to the Lord's side of the covenant. So this, it represents, obviously the, the altar is not the Lord himself, but the altar represents the Lord. And the blood being splashed up against this altar of worship is symbolic of this blood of the covenant being taken up by the Lord and the Lord agreeing to his part of the covenant relationship. And then later on, we see that the part that Moses put in bowls and saved, he then later on, after he reads the book of the covenant and the people affirm it again, he takes the blood and he sprinkles it on the people. Now, probably not all the people. I mean, we're talking you know, maybe hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people. 
perhaps he sprinkles it on the 70 elders as representative of the people. But he sprinkles it on the people, and this is symbolic of the blood being applied to their part of the covenant. So the blood is applied to God's part of the covenant. The blood then is sprinkled on the people and applies to their part of the covenant. And that is symbolizing the coming together in this two-way bilateral agreement, sealing the covenant. And so after Moses does this, offers these sacrifices and splashes the blood up against the altar, verse 7 says that he takes the book of the covenant, perhaps what he had just recorded, what he had just written down, and it says that he reads it to the people. And I would take this as the more formal, official agreement to the covenant terms because it's in the midst of this sacrificial ceremony. And so Moses reads the covenant almost like reading the vows, if you will. And notice how the people respond. We will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. I think this is an honest declaration on the part of the people. I think this is a simple, we agree to the terms of this covenant. We agree to follow the Lord our God. We agree to worship Him and Him alone. We agree to not take His name in vain. We agree to rest on the Sabbath day. We agree to to treat one another with love and not kill and not steal and not commit adultery. And I think they honestly, genuinely uh, meant that that acceptance of that covenant. But we know the story, don't we? We know the story. We know the history of Israel. We know that really not too far removed, really just a short time after this is done, the people have already engaged in idolatry. They've already, they've already gone off the path and forsaken what they said that they would do. But here, they accept the terms of the covenant, which means... Even though later they fail, this means that they have placed themselves under the covenant, under its terms and conditions and obligations, such that when they disobey, God's curses and chastening hand comes on them. And this is why, in the end, they are going into captivity in Babylon. After generations of apostasy and idolatry, think about how incredibly patient God has been with these people. Generation after generation after generation, some good kings in the mix there, but by and large, a very disobedient, hard-hearted people. God incredibly gracious and patient and long-suffering with them, but in the end, he holds them accountable to the curses of the covenant, which are recorded in Deuteronomy. And they go off into exile, and they're punished. But it's because they brought themselves under the covenant. They agreed to its stipulations and conditions. They agreed to these words. So then Moses, after they agree, he takes the blood and he sprinkles it on the people. And he says, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. What's interesting about that is it's only two times in the Old Testament that that exact kind of language is used. This is the blood of the covenant. Here and one time in the prophets. 
And what's interesting, though, is that Jesus in the upper room uses almost this exact language when he holds up the cup to the disciples and he says, this is the blood of the covenant. By that, he meant the new covenant, the new covenant that he was entering into with his people, with his disciples, with with those who would be covered by his blood. But he uses these words. And so they're very significant words. And with those words, Moses essentially puts the, the final declaration of acceptance on the covenant. This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So that is the, the covenant ceremony. And then in verses 9 through 11, we see a fellowship meal a fellowship meal that takes place with the elders of Israel. And so verse 9 says, Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel, they went up the mountain and they saw the God of Israel. Now, what does that mean, they saw the God of Israel? In chapter 33, we see in the same book of Exodus, chapter 33, we see the declaration where God says, nobody can see my face and live. So what does this mean that when it says they saw the God of Israel? I'm convinced that they did not see God in his fullness. Not even Moses saw God in his fullness. Moses, later on in Exodus, God says, you can't see my face. I will cover you. I will shield you. And I will allow my kind of my back parts, kind of a, uh, a metaphor, if you will. I'll allow my back parts so that you can see that God, Moses saw God's lesser glory. And when he came down from the mountain, his face was still shining. And I'm convinced that what the, the elders, Nadab and Abihu and Aaron, what they saw is they did see the glory of the Lord, but in a very restricted sense. I would say even more of a restricted sense than even Moses saw the glory of the Lord later in Exodus. And the reason I think that is because of what Exodus says later, but also because in this passage, notice there is absolutely no description of what God looks like. What does it describe? The only thing it describes is what is what appears under his feet. There, there is no description of the Lord himself or of what they see directly of the Lord. All that they're able to see is what they perceive as what the Lord's feet are on, what the Lord walks on. And it is described as this beautiful pavement, perhaps made of stones this pavement that is made of these clear, pure, blue, or perhaps sapphire stones. And it is, it is like a heavenly vision. In fact, it's compared to the heavens in the verse. That's what they see. And so I think they see the Lord, but they see him in a very restricted sense. They see a, a part of his glory, but they certainly do not see his fullness. They do not see his face, as Exodus 33 would say. So I don't think there's any contradiction there. So they go up to the mountain, and it says that the Lord, being very patient with them, did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites, which implies perhaps they went farther up than they were supposed to go. But the Lord is being very gracious in this time of peace, 
in this time of ratification of covenant. And God does not raise his hand against them. But it says they saw God and notice they ate and they drank. They ate and they drank. Now, what is significant about this is that in other places in Scripture, we see covenant ceremonies involve a meal like this. In the book of Genesis, chapter 26, we see Isaac making a, a, a covenant with the neighboring Philistines, and it says both parties sat down and ate and drank. In, uh, later on in Genesis, chapter 31, it says that Jacob and Laban entered into an agreement, and that agreement was followed by a meal. So this seems to be a typical ancient Near Eastern covenant pattern in that when the ceremony is done, when, when the covenant is ratified, that they then sit down into and enter into a covenant meal, fellowship meal together. And, and the symbolism of that is that we are now friends. We are now brothers. We're now family. We're in agreement with one another. And so for these elders to do this before God is an incredibly significant symbolic act. It is showing that God is now their Lord and they are now his people. And they're now in fellowship and peace with one another. And so that is the covenant ceremony. It is a ceremony that is solemn, that is serious. Why? Because being in covenant with God is something that is solemn and serious. And so this ceremony connotes that. It it conveys that seriousness of being in this relationship with the Lord. And then the last part of the passage, verses 12 through 18, I think the main idea here in this last part of the passage is that the worship of the Lord is determined by his word. The worship of the Lord is determined by his word. And I draw that point not only from verses 12 through 18, but also from what immediately follows these verses. Because what immediately follows these verses are the instructions of the construction of the tabernacle, the instructions regarding the priestly garments, the instructions regarding the furnishings of the tent of meeting. So in other words, God is about to tell Moses, when he calls Moses up to the mountain, which verses 12 through 18 describe, when he calls him up to the mountain and into this presence, into this cloud that surrounds Moses, the purpose is to give him how to worship God. This is how my tabernacle is to be constructed. This is how the priests are to conduct themselves and how they are to be dressed when they serve before me. This is how these furnishings are to be constructed. In other words, God is dictating the terms of worship as Moses goes up the mountain. And I think that essential point is is crucial for us, and that is the worship of the Lord is determined by his word. When we gather and worship together, we are not free to do whatever we want. When we gather and worship before the Lord, we are not free to have a carnival. When we gather and worship before the Lord, we are not free to have a rodeo. And by the way, I'm not just making those things up. I saw a video of a church who cleared out their, their whole 
um, seating in the main floor of their building and brought in tons and tons of dirt and had a rodeo. When we gather and worship before the Lord, it is not to have a rodeo. It's not to have a carnival. It's not to have a concert. When we gather and worship before the Lord, it is to come in honor and worship of him. And it is to be done in a way that accords with the way that he has taught us, with his word. Now, God sets the terms for that in Old Testament worship. Now, under the new covenant, we don't worship in the same way that Old Testament Israel worshiped. We're not tied to a central sanctuary in Jerusalem. We're not tied to one mountain, Mount Sinai, or even in Jerusalem. We're not tied to one building, whether it be a tabernacle or a temple. We're not, we're not committed to these animal sacrifices and going through a priesthood as Old Testament Israel was. So we're, we're in Christ. We're under the new covenant. We have one sacrifice that has been made and made for all time. We have one mediator between God and man, and that is Christ Jesus. So we don't go through a human priesthood. We don't need any more animal sacrifices. We don't need a central one place in the world building to worship because Jesus says, those who worship me will not worship me on this mountain or that mountain, but in spirit and in truth, he told the woman at the well in John 4. But the Bible does continue to teach us how to worship the Lord, doesn't it? Even in the New Testament, under the New Covenant, what, what are the things that are essential in worship? Singing songs of praise before God. Ephesians says, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in your heart to the Lord. The public reading of Scripture is mentioned in the New Testament. The proclamation of the Word of God, prayer. The breaking of bread, which is the Lord's Supper, communion. These are things that the New Testament says, this is how you worship me. And so we need to follow those. We're not free to just invent how we are to worship. Why? Because the Lord is holy. He's holy and he is majestic. And that is very clearly shown in this last vision of Moses ascending up the mountain. And so we see Moses going up the mountain. The Lord says, I'm going to give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandments, and these are probably just the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words that are on these tablets of stone. And Moses goes up with Joshua, his assistant, and Joshua stays a little bit behind on the mountain, and that sets up what we're going to see the next time we see Moses coming down the mountain. Because in about six chapters, we're going to see Moses coming back down the mountain and the first person he's going to meet is Joshua. So he's going up with Joshua. He leaves him there. He goes up to the top. When he comes back down, he's going to meet Joshua. And unfortunately, what's happening down below is pagan idolatry. But this is, this is what happens right before that. So he goes up with Joshua. And notice, he entrusts the leadership of Israel to Aaron and to her while he's gone. He says, if you've got any disputes, if you have any decisions, judgments that need to be made, you've got Aaron, you've got her, which puts the, the burden of responsibility on Aaron, doesn't it? When the people come to him and say, where's this Moses guy? We want a God to worship. Give us your gold and make us an idol, Aaron. And Aaron capitulates to them. He bows to them and he makes the idol. Aaron is responsible, isn't he? He was entrusted with this leadership role and he did not bear it responsibly. And then Moses goes up before the Lord 
the glory of God comes down on the mountain, from the people's perspective, it looks like a consuming fire, a blazing fire on top of the mountain. Think about what an incredible sight that is. And, and Moses is up there in that, at the top of the mountain. So you can understand maybe why the people would say, we don't know what happened to that Moses guy. We don't know if he's coming back or not. Moses was the mediator and he was, he bravely went into the presence of God on behalf of the Israelite people. But he goes up into this cloud. This cloud comes down and covers the mountain. And Moses is there for six days before the Lord says a word. Just think about that. Moses is there for six days before the Lord says a word. And on the seventh day, the Lord says, come into the cloud. And one of the commentators that I read said, sometimes we just need to sit in the presence of the Lord. Yes, we need to hear his word. And we need the Lord to speak to us. But sometimes we just need to sit and be silent in the presence of the Lord. And Moses did that for six days. And clearly we see the pattern here of six plus one, right? We've seen it all the way throughout Genesis and Exodus. Six days of work, a day of rest. So he, he's there for six days. Then on the seventh day, he calls Moses in. And he gives Moses the instructions that he's about to give him about the tabernacle and the other aspects of worship. And he stayed on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Again, in Scripture, it's a symbolic number, isn't it? 40 days and 40 nights, it becomes a number of testing. Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. We have uh, the people of Israel in the wilderness for 40 years. It becomes a symbol of testing. And so Moses is up there on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights in the Lord's presence. And the Lord is teaching him how he is to be worshipped. So if I were to just kind of bring this to a, a main idea tonight, I would say this, that God in his grace establishes a relationship with his people through covenant. God in his grace establishes a relationship with his people through covenant. And therefore, we are to relate to God with worship and with awe, with reverence, as we relate to him in that covenant. And you can see here the, the seriousness and the solemnness of entering into this special relationship with God. He is the Holy Lord of all the earth. And these people are entering into covenant with him, and they are to take that very seriously. So I would just throw that back to us as a final application. We are in covenant with God. We're not under the Sinai covenant, but we are in the new covenant with Christ. And the ceremony that reminds us and binds us to Christ is the Lord's Supper. Every time that we gather in that meal and hold up the bread and hold up the cup, 
It is a reminder to us that we are in covenant with the Lord, with our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And even though we have received incredible grace and mercy, being in covenant with God is still a very serious thing. Such that the writer of Hebrews can say, in the New Testament, our God is a consuming fire. And so we relate to him through grace, but also through incredible awe and seriousness because he is the Holy Lord. And so may we worship him as he is the Holy God. Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father, our Lord, we thank you for what you have done for us. Father, without your grace, we would be without hope. We would be lost. We're thankful, Lord, that you have come and you have brought salvation to us in the presence of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're thankful that through him, we can be in a relationship of peace, a covenant relationship of peace and fellowship with you. We thank you that you have drawn us to yourself. You've made us your own precious possession. And now you have given to us the ministry of living as your people in this world living as salt and light, being agents, ministers of reconciliation to the world. Lord, what an incredible privilege. Lord, when we worship you, when we relate to you, may we do so uh, with the seriousness, but also with the joy that is appropriate for worshiping a holy God. We thank you, Lord, for all that you've done for us. Lord, may we seek to honor you through all of our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.